Welcome to Streaming Science, a student-run podcast series out of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, focused on increasing science literacy through interactive conversations with scientific experts. Hello, everyone. My name is Danielle Frank, and I'm your host for today's show. Today, I have with me Dr. Weisling to discuss climate change and its effects on insects. Dr. Weisling, why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself? I am an associate professor in the Department of Entomology here at the University of Nebraska. I do quite a bit of teaching, mm-hmm. 75% of my appointments teaching. Wow. I coordinate our online master's degree program, so if anybody wants a master's degree <laughs> in entomology, we can help you out with that. Uh, I also coordinate uh, our insect science undergraduate program, wow. so I teach a variety of classes ranging from basic insect biology to behavior to, in some cases, insect management. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, so you teach a lot. How do you get the word across about science. And I know not only at the university, but all over the country, we're trying to boost science um, and STEM. So how do you go about doing that? Well, really, I try to get at least interested students more set up as ambassadors. So Mm -hmm. if if you can get across to at least a few students, insects are important. And to understand the basic (laughs) features of insects, they go out into the community and they rather than say, oh my gosh, I took this really boring bug class (laughs) and I don't like bugs anyway. Maybe they're a little bit more interested and yeah. say, you know, bugs have a little bit more impact in our lives than, than you would ever even imagine mm-hmm. do. And most insects are not pests. A lot of them, you know, are helpful in some way for us. So I think that's part of it. Also, at least in the downtime from teaching, we're trying to do, I'm working with a graduate student mm-hmm. that's doing a citizen science project. So she started something called Monarch, or sorry, Milkweed Watch, mm-hmm. which is a Facebook page right now. But we go out and we train citizens to look for different insects on milkweed. Now this, this goes in totally along with the idea that, that we're trying to save monarchs, but we're also drawing attention that milkweed is not just important for monarch butterflies, mm-hmm. but also for a lot of different other insect species. And if they don't have milkweed, they're not going to survive yeah. either. So through, through that uh, type of educational program, it's the same sort of thing. We're training a, a few people that actually become ambassadors in their neighborhoods or in wherever they live, and they go out and start talking about the benefits of of having milkweed and all the insects that can be found in milkweed. Wow. Well, how did you get into science? Did you have somebody, I mean, into insects? Did you have a person approach you, or was it just personal interest, or what? Well, no, it was not personal (laughs) interest. It was actually, I didn't even think much about insects until... Uh, I was in college at Colorado State University, mm-hmm. and I was flunking out. <laughs> I tried pre-vet, I tried ornithology, I tried basic biology, and I just couldn't seem to focus. Mm-hmm. But I liked fly fishing, so I tied my own little flies, you know, and you're, you're trying to mimic an insect, but I had no idea what I was mimicking, <laughs> you know, trying to tie. So I thought, I'm about to get kicked out of school, and as any 20-year-old, 21-year-old guy would think, I can just quit school and make a living, you know, time flies. I'll just open up a little shop. And so I thought, so I will take an entomology course just to learn what they look like so I can tie the best flies Mm -hmm. in the state of Colorado. (laughs) Turned out that semester, I got straight A's at all my classes, not just the entomology classes. And so it's kind of like that light beam shines, clouds break, light beam hits you (laughs) squarely. Whole shebang. Yeah. Yeah. And harp music plays and everything (laughs) just like fits and you're going something aligned right Mm -hmm. I'm not going to mess with it this is karma 
So I just stuck with it and, wow. and made a career. I got a bachelor's degree out of it at Colorado State. I did a master's degree at Colorado State, and I came here and did a Ph.D. Wow. and have not left the field of entomology since, and that was a long time ago. I won't <laughs> say how long. Wow, do you still fly fish? No. No? Oh. no. That's one of my post-kids graduating and having more spare time, hopefully, yeah. hobbies that I want to get back into. Yeah, very cool. Um, so just because streaming science, we're trying to inform people of climate change and how it affects insects, what is your take on climate change? Uh, climate change, you know, at least from what I know about it, and mm -hmm. I'm certainly there's, there's people that are dedicated to that field that know quite a bit more about it than I do, but it, it's really uh, just sort of a statistical backing of distribution changes mm -hmm. or, you know, climatic changes that can be um, observed. And... You know, you, you, we can see some, some definite impacts on insects and the most likely culprit of these changes in distribution or changes in uh, species diversity mm -hmm. uh, is climate change. I mean, that's one thing that's measured. It's, it's, we've, we've seen climate uh, temperatures change rapidly, yeah. uh, and there seems to be you know, quite a bit of change with insect distribution and like I said, species diversity based on that. Insects are incredibly adaptable little organisms. Yeah. You know, they, they do have requirements. They need food, water, shelter. They need temperatures within a certain range in order to live. But as long as they have everything that meets their needs, they, they naturally expand their range farther and farther. As long as everything's met, mm -hmm. they can survive there. Huh. So one thing we've seen is milder winters, for example. Winters are great ways to control insects, yeah. you know, especially pest insects, because that's what we're used to. Insects spend the winter either as adults, kind of hibernating, or they may be eggs somewhere, or pupae, or even larvae. They could be in the soil, they could be just in leaves, uh, bored into trees somewhere. But nice cold winters will take some of them out, not all of them. Yeah. Some of them can, you know, are able to exist at a nice um, temperature, maybe in a sheltered area, but some of them may die. But with, with milder winters, and we see this um, several times, some people will come in and say, why is this particular insect at such a high population this yeah. spring? And we're saying, well, we had a warmer winter, and normally we would, you know, a cold winter would kill off a yeah. bunch of them. But if you don't have that coldest, cold type of winter, uh, it can be a real problem. The other thing is snowfall. If you get snowfall, doesn't matter how cold it gets. They're nice and insulated as long as they're in the ground or um, so changes in precipitation, especially snowfall, can help an overwintering insect. So even, like I said, even if it got cold, that snow helps to protect it to a great extent. Yeah. So. so for those of our listeners who don't know, what is overwintering? Overwintering, yes. <laughs> Just jumped right into that one. Insects have to, if there's a period of time in their life, doesn't matter where they are, if they're tropical or if they're in a temperate climate like ours, mm -hmm. where it does snow, there's at some point food may not be available for them. And it could be due to drought. In our case, it has to do with cold temperatures. Mm -hmm. So they, they develop a stage within their life cycle that allows them to, to quiesce, you would call it, or diapause hibernation essentially. Mm -hmm. So different insects, it depends on the insect at what stage they do this. Some are, you know, think of a white grub or June beetle. Yep. June beetles are actually 
nice and snug in the soil as a larvae, a little C-shaped grub that will get warm this spring, come up and start feeding on your grass roots. And then in the summer, the adults will emerge. And then those adults will mate, they'll lay eggs, there'll be little larvae that go down and feed on the grass roots again. And then when it gets cold next fall, they'll burrow deeper into the soil and they'll hibernate. Okay. Spend the winter down there. That's one example. There's so many different yeah. examples. There's some insects that will overwinter as adults and they'll come out on warm days, like we've had recently when it's 50, 60, 70, when the sun hits them. They'll, they'll um, be all over the mm -hmm. house, for example, you may find them. And that might include ladybugs, box elder bugs, flies, all kinds of different <laughs> things. So they, they, when the temperature cools off, they slow down and as it, it, they can withstand freezing temperatures but they can still be active on warm days. So okay. the advantage of that is when, when springtime starts, they're ready. They're ready to get out there and they're ready to mate and they're ready to reproduce. So warmer temperatures that, if we get warmer temperatures earlier, mm -hmm. it can mean uh, that these insects get an earlier start. Okay. And I think what I said earlier was we know a lot about pest insects, maybe less about beneficial insects, but this means pest insects in an earlier start. As long as it's warm enough to support their activity, as long as the host plant that they're going to eat is available, there will be insects starting earlier and earlier. So this means that they can perhaps build a greater population, perhaps they can, they can through movement, through walking or through flying, they can go farther and farther in each summer. So each generation can move a little bit farther. So it's, it's um, the, these changes in temperature really seem to impact how quickly they can, they can start to develop. And in some cases, they may develop so quickly that a natural enemy like a parasitoid may not be able to catch up with them and, and infect them and help control the yeah. population. So it just continues to build. So with the nights getting so cold, does that affect the insects, or are they used to the changes in temperature? Insects are uh, used to change the temperature. If it's too cool, mm -hmm. they just don't develop. Okay. Okay. If, it, if it's too hot, they don't develop either. So, you know, we have temperature extremes, let's say. Temperature extremes can really impact the population mm -hmm. of the insect. If an insect is adapted to warmer temperature, let's say it's it's... May, the insect is not in overwintering mode anymore. Mm -hmm. It is now in its springtime summer mode. And we get a really cold night and it drops full of freezing and the insect is exposed, it will freeze and it will die. Okay. But if it gets to 33, it's not a problem. It just warms up the next day. They're off and running and, huh. and very active. The only problem would be it's something like a honeybee. If it's out of the hive and it gets cold and it gets too cold to make it back to the hive, mm -hmm. it will basically, its movement stops. Um, because it's too cold to fly, and it's then um, subject to, or you know, more vulnerable yeah. at that stage to be eaten by something. Wow. Um, what is your hypothesis on the relationship between insects and climate change? I definitely think that the changes in some insect uh, activity patterns or mm -hmm. ranges that we've seen are impacted by changes in temperature, uh, a gradual rise in the, the average temperature. Mm -hmm. And there's a few insects, at least in Nebraska, that we can see this happen with. Uh, one of them is called a green gym beetle, which is really, we just talked about gym beetles yeah. a little bit. 
and that there's really big grubs. These are beautiful big green beetles, and we never used to see them in, in Nebraska. The adults, um, I'm not even sure what the adults eat, but the larvae will feed on roots of plants okay. in the soil. And we, we've, we've seen at least since you know, in the 70s, just these, these beetles show up farther and farther yeah. north. Now, we can, so we find them in Lincoln, we can find them in the south-central counties in Nebraska where we used to never see them in these areas. Now we see them commonly. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. One is climate change has increased the temperature, which statistically is shown, you know, mm -hmm. there's ch change in temperature, but also insects are adaptable. Yeah. So this is just maybe a slow evolutionary process that they're just able to withstand cooler and cooler temperatures so they can expand their range slowly. So where we see insects that maybe can move into a range very rapidly, maybe that's better evidence than mm -hmm. some of this more gradual changes that we see. Now, so in Nebraska, it may not be the green June beetle, you know, not sure if that's you could say, well, that's totally affected by climate yeah. change. But then there are tick species. There's two of them. There's the Lone Star tick and the black-legged tick, or the deer tick, okay, yeah. that have suddenly just moved into the region. There's been a real quick movement of them to the north, especially the black-legged ticks. Oh. So that is you know, strong evidence that that's a change, um, the rapid change in temperature, because they have a slow generation time. Okay. So you're not going to get uh, quick adaptability into a colder yeah. climate. So it's, 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 the, the, it's the proper hosts are available and the temperature uh, requirements for them are greater farther and farther north every year. So it's a little, wow. bit, uh, it's a little bit alarming. I was just watching a uh, graphic that showed the movement of the black-legged ticks to the north and right through the Midwest and it's, oh. it's pretty alarming. Yeah. And these are things that you know, carry disease. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That we should be worried about. <laughs> Another one is is not so much in Nebraska, but changes in uh, the range of mosquito species. You know, kind of rapid change in, yeah. in mosquito species, and some of these that can vector diseases. And you were talking like down in Texas, moving farther north rather quickly. Wow. Um, one other species that you know, one that I'm working with is monarch butterfly to some extent. Yes. That. You know, it's been in decline, and that's been making the news. The, the, the great overwintering populations down in Mexico, mm -hmm. all the butterflies in August, September, make this huge trek down to this place outside of Mexico City, and they overwinter on trees. Okay. And the populations have always been measured in uh, the hundreds of millions and even close to a billion wow. individuals down there. And then in springtime, they slowly make their way back up north, having their babies on the way. On milkweed, and then eventually, um, generation after generation occurs, and they end up back here in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And their range to the north probably isn't limited by temperature; it's limited by milkweed. Um. And milkweed's been noticed to go farther and farther north in the past few decades. And part of the, th and it's you know also if we have a nice warm, I'm not exactly sure what triggers monarchs to start to head back down south, mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's nighttime temperatures or if it's day length. But there's a trigger at some point in August or September that, that uh, they start their great migration to the south. But we see more and more of them later and later in the season. And part of that uh, is the speculation is that temperatures are remaining warmer, so they're, they're not leaving, and the host plant is available, the, the milkweed. Yeah. 
And even more, now that milkweed is farther north, those insects in that range get a much later start and they can't fly south fast enough to avoid getting frozen out. Oh. So because they leave too late, then they get frozen out. So these are just some things that suggest evidence. Yeah. There is some evidence, some data that supports that a rapidly um, changing climate is affecting these insects uh, primarily. Wow. So some of them we can't say that. Like I said, the green jew beetle, mm -hmm. they are adaptable, so they do um, slowly, they should slowly expand the range. Yeah. But in some cases, the range, the, this expansion is really fast. Yeah, wow. Um, why should our listeners care about insects? I know you mentioned how they're so wide and um, wide of an influence all over the world. But why should they care, and possibly how could they help insects? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I love this question. Because insects are, without insects, we're, we're done. We're toast. Yeah. We need insects primarily for, for food. Yeah. If we don't have pollinators, we're in big trouble. Also, recycling. Uh, think of all the, the leaves that fall into the ground, oh. the twigs that fall into the ground, dead plants, dead animals. Yeah. All of these things are utilized by insects that help break them down. So poop is a good example. Mm -hmm. If poop is not um, eaten by some sort of a critter or decomposed by some sort of a pathogen, it piles up very quickly. Yeah. And a good example was that was Australia decided to bring cows in to the country. They had nothing to eat cow poop. Yeah. And so the poop started to accumulate to the point where it choked up pastures, so they ended up bringing in dung beetles to start to eat the poop okay. to get rid of it. So, I mean, that's a really good yeah. example. Uh, there's insects that um, we rely on for biological control, uh, parasites and predators not parasites, parasitoids is the proper word, but predators also that eat insects that are pests. So there's a lot of positive impacts that insects have, but what most people notice are the pest mm -hmm. insects because they're, you know, they're, all the other ones just blend in the background yeah. and don't really notice. But the pests, they're eating our food, they're eating our house, they're biting our dog, they're biting us. So then we, we tend to notice them as a problem. Mm -hmm. So. My best advice for people to help them out is before you do anything with an insect, because people want generally to spray an insect, and there's this whole thrill of the kill thing, so you know you want to watch them twitch and suffer because you don't like them. But the best thing people can do is identify what it is. Do not just say, this is an insect, therefore I want to get rid of it. Figure out if it's an insect that's actually causing a problem or not. It may be an insect that's incredibly beneficial or really has no impact on you. It's just part of the, the, the food chain, part of the circle of life. That's a bad thing to say, <laughs> a part of yeah. the food chain that if you eliminate it, it could, it could actually cause a problem and you could actually have more of a pest problem than, than you had before because this was something that was eating mm -hmm. a pest insect. So always get an identification of it before you do any sort of management. And if you can control an insect without insecticides, do it. Because spraying insecticides, it does get rid of the pest, but it has an impact on a lot of non-target species. Okay. And that could just, it, once you get into that cycle of spraying the pest over and over again, it impacts all these other species and just, um, it's, it's, not, it's not a good situation no. at all. So also, as far as, you know, some of our most important insects are pollinators. 
And in urban environments especially, we don't have great pollinator habitat. Mm -hmm. Now, I wouldn't say you want to become a beekeeper, because I, I don't want to become a beekeeper. <laughs> but, but there's, in North America alone, there's 4,000 other types of bees that pollinate plants. And these are called solitary bees. Huh. So we can actually create habitat to support these bees. Uh, things called bee hotels, for example, which are, are holes that are drilled in blocks of wood. And they use it for nesting. And if you get on the internet and look up bee hotels, there's all kinds of examples. So providing habitat for insects, and it's not just, you know, bee pollinators. Yeah. If you go out and you put a, uh, plantings, like in my yard, I have islands of flowers, and they're native flowers. Yeah. And to the neighbors, they kind of look like weed patches, but to <laughs> me, they, they, they're beautiful because they, they're flowering all the time. And what's available is pollen and nectar. So it's good for the bees, it's good for butterflies, and it's good for all kinds of other species of beneficial insects that are, are predators and parasitoids yeah. that are in that area. But if you, uh, if you think of a cornfield, cornfield's just one species of plant. Our yards, if you just have grass, is one species of plant. If you want to promote a good, diverse, stable habitat, you have a variety of plants. And then you don't go in and kill off one species. Yeah. You, you just let things uh, equalize. So I think those are usually the best things to do for insects. Identify what it is you're dealing with. It don't spray unless you need to, and provide habitat uh, for beneficial insects. Wow, that is some great advice. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you for um, sitting down with me today for this interview, and right. thank you very thank much. You. Thank you for dropping by String and Science. I hope you learned a little more about climate change and the effect it is having on our world. For more information, head to the links below. Scientific research is showing that the climate is changing and everyone is being effective. What role do you play?